You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. Charles Bukowski, the transgressive author, famously said, I think I need a drink. Almost everybody does, only they don't know it. I have 25 years of experience traveling the world, finding great bottles, and my own adventures. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. Today's episode is with a member of the royal family of comedy, Amy Stiller. She has the comedy gene in her blood and is very funny. Her one-woman show will be coming out very soon. Just trust. Put it on your list. Sitting here with Amy Stiller, and I'm beyond happy because uh, she loves red wine. Well, you know, you get to that age, your cholesterol's a little high, and you have to go on a red wine regimen. It's doctor's orders, John. I, yeah. <laughs> I love the red wine regimen. I've been in the business for 22 years. I've never heard it. Um, well, uh, no, it's actually really good for your cholesterol. I know, um, I know, I mean, but I've never heard it put like that. You know, not at 7 in the morning. Right. But, um, <laughs> right. No, I, you know, I... I, I when Although it's at 7 in the morning, that'd be pretty hilarious. You start drinking, people look at you and go, hey... It's my cholesterol. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hey, it's my cholesterol. What are you looking at? Screw you. <laughs> so this is what we're drinking. Is uh, We have mm. Lo-Fi uh, Gamay from uh, Santa Barbara. Mm. Uh, it's Lo-Fi stands for Low Fidelity. Uh, the gentleman what does who, that mean? Uh, I like all that stuff. That Low Fidelity. There's huge vinyl heads. You walk into the winery. There's 5,000 albums. They have a turntable. And they love just... Uh, they think that wine... Uh, the relationship... From wine to vinyl is that when you listen to vinyl, it has little pops and cracks. Oh, yeah. And wines have have little bit of you know interesting pops that make notes. it yeah, Do I call notes. Them notes that yes. uh, make it very interesting to mm-hmm. uh, to drink. And that's why they called it. They're cool guys. This is Gamay, which is the grape in Beaujolais, and it's just a nice just, summer. I like rack. listening to you talk about it. It just it's very calming to me. <laughs> It just, it makes you feel less neurotic, or maybe it justifies your neurosis. I don't know. I, there's just something about the wine culture. It's all, I've always wanted to be a wine person ever since I saw Sideways. Right. And I, yeah. I started reading the book. I never finished it, but it was sort of a, a three-month period where I kind of got in that world. Oh, I'll tell you, every wine guy in the world winced when he picked up that spit bucket and drank oh, it. Oh, God. Just like, oh. Oh, that was oh. that was so gross, but it was. Oh. But it was. Oh it my was, god, it was hilarious, right? It's perfect. I, mean, I love that movie. Um, so I want to say thank you, uh, first of all, for coming to do the live show, drinking on the job. You were. Oh, that's what it's called. Yeah, in the podcast is called oh. drinking on the job as well. So I was promoting that with the live show. Um, you were great. You filled in. I well, had it two was cancellations. So well, you my friend Tom, our mutual friend Tom Carosa, said, right. "Do you have a story about working in restaurants?" And he didn't even know that I had just done this. Right. In L.A. at the Comedy Central stage at Sit and Spin, literally two, uh, a right. week before. And I like just literally got in that day back mm. from L.A. It sounds so, it was, sounds so jet-setting, oh doesn't my it? God, and then yes. I was like, sure, I'll fill in. Right. Um, uh, so we were all kind of shocked, and it got such great laughs. Um, I, my, one of my favorite lines <laughs> is, uh, you were waiting tables at Sarah Beth's, and you were waiting on your first two-top. And you were just kind of appalled that they didn't want you in their conversation. Well, oh, well actually, I, I was actually, believe it or not, I was a hostess at Sarah Beth's, but I waited tables at Good Enough to Eat, oh, sure. Marvin Gardens. Actually, I worked at the Easy Street Restaurant in Nantucket for 
it felt like two weeks or something. It was, I was very young, and um, <clears throat> that was where people, you know, had to get on the boat, and they, there was a time oh, right. crunch, and they weren't, you know, people were not very nice. There was, you know, I had to get things quickly, and it, it wasn't very good. Then I got fired somewhere. It's all a vague memory. Was it your parents telling you, you have to go get a job? Um, because well, of the, you know, I, you know, I didn't, was it self-motivated? It was kind of both. Like, I didn't know what to do. And, and um, part of me, you know, um, we had a, used to go to a teacher's restaurant all the time. Do you remember teacher's restaurant? It was this restaurant on the Upper West Side. And there may be some people from the 1970s listening to this who right. remember it. And Al Pacino would come in there. They'd have chicken guy young. That was their... Huh? Dish. And um, Roger Grimsby from Channel 7 Eyewitness News, he, would, he was always at the bar. Right. I don't know if he was. He seemed like a drinker. I don't, I don't, right. I don't want to speak ill of the dead. But, right. um, uh, yeah, and, um, you know, all the cool waiters, you know, they'd have their waiter, waitress job, and rents were like $300 a month then. And, you know, that was like when, you, you know, you'd be a waiter, and you'd, and you'd, you'd go on auditions, and... You know, have your survival job, and but you right. know, then as time went on, it, it wasn't as romantic, and then, it kind of lost it. It, it does. Yeah. Well, I think as you age, it tends to be less, you know, fun. I had a, a great. Uh, I used to wait tables at a place called Arizona Two Hundred Six, and I get hired to do a ten-minute set at Dune Road, Upper East Side. Um, I, I couldn't do it because I was waiting tables that night. Right. But I told the guy who was running the room, his name, I think it was Pete Spellos, and I said, Pete, I can come in and do 10, 15 minutes, but I have to hit the stage right at 7.30, walk out at 7.45, um, and be back at my job. And he said, done, no problem. So I literally, in the middle of a shift, a little Romenko key that ran your computer system, your station, I gave it to my fellow waiter, had my waiting uniform still on, jumped a cab, went to the Upper East Side, walked in, did my 15-minute set, left, came back, and took back my Oh, my tables. God. <laughs> That is so funny. I'm going to throw a name at you now. Okay. okay? Um, Uh-oh. It's a, a very good friend of mine, Peter Cassell. He was the general manager of Andiamo. You were a co-check there. Oh, Andiamo. Andiamo. Yes. Okay. And on, so, in Lincoln Center-ish. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And he said that... Uh, Betsy Adam was, too, who was in um, All the Way, you know, huh. with... Um, you know, the LBJ uh, Broadway show with... Um, oh, oh you, with Brian Cranston. Yes. Yeah. She okay. played Lady Bird Johnson. She, she was a co-check person there, too. Wow. How crazy Peter is that? Peter Cassell. Peter Cassell. And he said that um, Amy was crazy, absolutely fucking hilarious. Yeah, was and we used to go to the then. China Club till four in the morning after our shift. <laughs> I was... Those... You know, I was really miserable. Right. <laughs> I was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I probably I was crazy. Whatever crazy is, I'm glad I was. But you know, if you're hilarious, if you're crazy and you're not funny, oh. it's bad. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like being poor and and crazy. It's and just poor, like you're just yeah. nuts. If you're yeah, rich, you're just, just eccentric. Yeah, yeah Peter. Because now, yes, good looking guy. Uh, okay, I'll give yeah. him that. Uh, super nice guy. We're mm-hmm. still friends to this day. I, uh, you know, it's so funny. It's so funny working those things. I remember. Um, checking coats. I was like worked for a caterer, hmm. but but they didn't want us to 
have tips. It was the party box. What? And I would hoard my tips. I would go to the, the bathroom stall. I'd sneak the dollar <laughs> bills. And, and I'd be afraid if the, the woman who owned the place was in the stall next door if a dollar bill fell. What, what? That's un-American not I to know. want you to have your tips. What the well, hell was that about? Well, you know, it's her business. She didn't want people to feel obligated to tip. Right. But I was like, I'm going to make my money. But your mom, like, I have a 20-year-old and she's having a hard time finding a job. Your mom and dad had to be pretty proud that you were working and yeah, self-sufficient. I mean, well, because, or, I mean, I think, well, I wasn't, it, you never really were self-sufficient. Yeah, the, what yeah, I learned right. is it's really tough to make a living. You know, a lot of people don't know how hard it is to make a living, um, especially agree. in the city, mm-hmm. right? Even then, I mean, right. now more so. You know, I, I, I felt guilty if I wasn't, because it would yeah. feel... You know, it's almost like I was handed a gold card to this business, but right. then like you had, it felt strange because I couldn't fit into my grow into my shoes because right. it took. I was a late bloomer. Right. I think I had, I don't know, I was bouncing off the walls, you know, mm. back then without cocaine. Right. Even yeah. though everyone was doing cocaine then, right. weren't they? Yes, they, they were. In those it was restaurants. fueled uh, by it. Yeah, I was never. A you, drug you'd work person. a double shift and you'd make two hundred fifty bucks and then you'd spend one hundred and fifty on blow. So you walked wow. away with hundred and then you had drinks after you made but sixty know, bucks for the night. Yeah, I used to go to Studio Fifty Four when I was seventeen. Ah. Um, I never did drugs, but then I found out later that my parents would call for them to let us in. <laughs> Isn't that sad? So one time, me and my friend Vicky and Anthony, we brought Ben. He's four years younger than me, right? right? So we put him in a Fiorucci T-shirt with Mickey Mouse glasses, and I said to him, now, don't have eye contact with anyone, act cool, and don't fuck it up for the rest of us. Can I say that? Okay. That's perfect, okay. yeah. And, and, I lo- so you were his and, first director. Yeah, that's why he resents me as the only authority figure in his life, really. You know, there's nothing like an older sister, right? right? But, it, but it's got to be crazy difficult growing, under, uh, growing up under the shadow of the Stiller name. I mean, your mom and dad's uh, uh, Stiller and Mira were, uh, I mean, I remember um, Carson. I remember a little bit of the Ed Sullivan show. Right. I mean, they were just, they were giants, and they were hysterically funny. Um, and then, so I, I have this question. I, mm-hmm. I was thinking about this. Is it more hard, is it more difficult to find who you are when you have been branded by a family name? I think of like Robin Williams' son, right? He'll go out yeah. and if he wants to be in the business, you're in the business. People walk, you know, he walks away and they go, well, too bad he, he didn't, well, like didn't get I the said, comedy there gene. A, or, there was you know, a weird gold card handed right. to you and I'd go on these auditions and Mira Sorvino is a little younger than me, but she'd be on the auditions and or Sam Robards. But I didn't feel like I had earned it. Um, and and then I guess there was the pressure to 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 live up to it too. And then meanwhile, my brother was getting famous, mm. and that's right. a lot of what my show is about. Right. Uh, that that's in in my show. I think it was more like, oh my god, my my little brother is. Right. Are you kidding me? Right. You know, there was that that <laughs> part of me. Right. Um, at the same time, it was a lot of fun. You know, we'd go right. to L.A. in the summers, and my parents were on Love American Style, the right. Paul Lynch show. What's my line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> celebrity sweepstakes. Right. Uh, you, all these, you know, at Love Boat. And um, right. I talk about that in my show, too. Um, so I, I, I felt like, uh, you know, my path was, like, really different from my brother's. And, I, and looking back on it, I never thought about this, but I think it was really a different time for women, and mm-hmm. that factored into it too, because there wasn't diversity casting. Either you were an ingenue or a character woman, right. and people kept telling me, 
oh, you'll grow into these roles and you won't work till you're older. Right. And I'm like, but I'm pretty, but I'm not, you know, two pounds, you know. And I, right. I was always trying to lose weight and, and fit into something. I, I saw just a great interview with David Letterman and Tina Fey. I don't know if you saw it on Netflix. And I have to see that. Is that David fantastic. Letterman's new show? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, I really it's have to awesome. See that. And he, she says, you know, women have always been funny because, but they have, you know, under that idea of like, well, women can't be funny. And she said to Dave, well, how many women writers do you have in your show? Mm. And he was like, uh, really, none, I, I guess. Except Meryl Marco, uh, isn't she? Oh, She's a lot of the woman behind the man with right. him. Right, yeah. But, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's so true. So I think your, your brother had it easier because he, he was He fit into a, a slot. Yeah. I also firmly believe that, you know, we all have different paths in life. Right. And that, that was his path. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't know how comfortable I would have been in, and in the sense whatever it sounds like, but in it being so easy, mm-hmm. I, I almost was more comfortable with the struggle or wanted to be with the, the waiter, the waiters, you know, and to right. see, to, to, to live that, to, to be in touch. Not that you're not in touch, you know, otherwise, but like other countries have mandatory military time service. I she agree. says you should be, you should have to wait tables yes. on your fellow man it teaches you about food, wine, should, culture, and just the way people should behave. I think everyone should do it for six months. Yeah, and yeah. You, and to be treated like crap yeah. too. Oh yeah, you know, or and then oh, you know, All right. list, you know, like I remember, or checking coats. I checked coats at Joe Allen Gabriel's. You know, Gabriel's restaurant. Oh my god! You know, Gabriel. He's nuts. Oh my God, right? yes. I'll tell you, you want, want, want my crazy Gabriel story? Yes. He I, never shuts up. No. He talks and talks. I, I went uh, to trail a shift there. It was crazy busy. They made a crap load of money. Back in, that was the day when you got paid cash, 500 bucks a night. Mm. I went there uh, to stand in the kitchen, look at the food the first night. That's all you're supposed to do is observe. Busy night. Doors pop open. He walks through and he goes, what the fuck? fuck are you doing and, and I'm like what he goes what the fuck are you doing I love and a packed crazy night and he just storms out and I went fuck you asshole his chef is the partner the whole staff gets ooh kind of quiet like, you're in I leave no I leave the manager calls me and says hey Gabe really liked you he wants you to come exactly. back and work and I said yeah, I said no him. I can't I'm not no way would I work for that guy <laughs> so then he calls me and he says uh, hey what do you mean you're not going to make money like this anywhere in the city you're going to come back here and work I said no I'm fucking not he goes you're crazy to pass up that kind of money I said well I would need that kind of money because I would strangle the shit out of you one night in the middle of the floor click <laughs> yeah so yeah I can see that yeah, but but the restaurant business is it's like theater it's uh, yeah. it's, it's exciting you know the, you have you know, every, you know the manager comes out and goes okay we get 250 covers on the books tonight everybody's drinking espresso and it's well, a that's plan that's the thing you know like, yeah. like I, it was sort of like a whole other, seeing the other side of it because I had grown up like being the guest you know right. going to restaurants with my parents and um and I remember I worked at um, Good Enough to Eat. That was my first job. I know and, well. I lived and on when 80th it was in Amsterdam. It was when it was that little place. Right. And my friend Peter Landrock, who is now the head waiter at Musso and Franks. Okay. Um, and also a wonderful actor, comedian, writer, you know, but he's like a career waiter. Right. And um, I said, like, does 86 mean there's no more of it? And he just hugged me and said, oh, honey, <laughs> you're so green. <laughs> It's yeah. great, but it's great you were in the trenches. 
you know, right. you were in the trenches. That's, uh, I think that's what gives you your perspective now and your, your gratitude of um, where you are. You have, a, you have a name that carries a lot of weight. Right. And, and Ben, ben waited tables shift. three yeah. weeks at um, Cafe Central. Oh. And I remember him saying, like, he gave them coffee instead of decaf. And they were right. like, this is great, decaf. And Ben was like, yeah, isn't it great? <laughs> and then they died of a heart attack later <laughs> that night. <laughs> So he waited tables as well. I don't know. He waited for tables for three weeks, but then I think he got an acting job. Right. You know. Uh, so do, um, this is an odd question. Uh, two kids, did they help you more than they helped Ben? Or did they were just, he, he networked better than you did? Or? I, I just feel like we were two different paths. Right. I think that he was more motivated. Um, he, like, I was more sensitive. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't have, like, an angle, like a hook. Again, I do feel it was a different time for women. I don't think there were the I options that there are now totally to, be, agree. to be funny. You, you know, you either were pretty and, and a leading woman, ingenue, right. or you were, you know, fat and weird looking and the character woman. Right. And I wasn't either. And even you know. the funny women like Goldie Hawn and Private Benjamin, or like, you know, they had to be either sexy or just stupid, like dolts. Yeah, there, there was, was there's no was clever, really funny. And I think I was very depressed during those right. years because I did feel a sense of despair and that there weren't as many options. Mm-hmm. So I think it kind of led me down a spiritual path and, you know, into a deep depression. <laughs> Spiritual path is code for deep depression, deep, John. Uh, deep. Uh, like I ended yeah. up like at some sweat lodge with a Vietnam vet in upstate New York. Doing ayahuasca. <laughs> I never did the drugs. I just was around a lot of the right. drugs. And then actually I was at some place in upstate New York. And then I found out that this guy had, had um, possibly killed someone. And he was had pardoned by Mario Cuomo. Like we went to his house and he said... And he's going. We're going to go to. The, we're going to go to the house and ring the crystal bowl. And then we went to his apart house, which he was like living better than I did in right. New York City. And he was knocked on his bedroom door. He goes, "Yo, Greta." And he goes, "Relationships." And then I look. There's a a, po- a Woodstock poster, and above it, a pardon from Mario Cuomo. <laughs> this guy. It was Gary McGivern. Okay, Google uh, him. Uh, okay. I hope. He, I hope he doesn't get upset by this podcast. <laughs> but I mean, he had been pardoned, but. Still, wow. There was, so, how do you find yourself in the company of him? Is just you were in the sweat lodge. I he think was there, I have a dark side, yeah. John. I think <laughs> he was in the spiritual me, journey as well. Apparently, right. apparently, which led to a better apartment than mine in New York. Wow. Uh, it was the Phoenicia Pathwork Center. I signed up for a newsletter. Oh, I know Phoenicia. I go up there all the time. Really? There's yeah. a, I don't know if that place exists anywhere, right. but I signed up for a newsletter called The Current, and it oh. entitled me to a free weekend, weekend in oh. Phoenicia. So I went. I was just, it was a lot of crying and smoking cigarettes in those days. Cigarettes. Yeah, Yeah, on and off I'd smoke. When I'd get upset, I'd I'd go, (laughs) my mom smoked. So she made me feel like smoking was safe. You tight with your mom and dad? Very tight. Yeah. Very tight with my mom, especially. Yeah. And my dad, yeah. But um, the, uh, yeah, my mom smoked. She, uh, she liked her vodka, but not like too much. I mean, right. But, she was Irish, you right. know. Oh, I know, I know. I was. Uh, I'm Irish, and that's. Uh, uh, before I get married, my my wife asked my best friend. She goes, "Do you think he like drinks too much?" And and he said, "No, he's Irish." <laughs> that was yeah, that was right. his answer. Exactly. Like, that's just yeah, the way it is. Right. Um, uh, 
Yeah, my mom was. My mom was. You, did you meet my mom? Ever? I've never met your mom. I have to tell you, the, she's really. Fun. She was yeah. really funny. She'd say things like it was, you know. And she was a writer. She was. Yeah, a great she writer. wrote a great she, play called Down the Garden right. Paths. But the, I think the real great play was After Play. Okay. And they just did a reading of it at HB, uh, which went really well with Marlo Thomas and Joy Behar, Greg Malavy. That might come back to Broadway, right? I don't know, but uh. it was it was like a reading, like a stage right. reading, and I thought, well, you know, it's a stage reading, and it went it was really great. And David wow. Saint directed it. Huh. It's really funny. Well, I thought I, Marla Thomas was amazing. Right. I think she could do that role. Huh. I mean, down the garden path is. Uh, I mean, Eli Wallach was in that. Yeah, I was right? in it too, and you were in that as well, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. your your credits are kind of crazy. I mean, you, I know they're you have off a the charts. Lo- I know well, you've got a ton of like filmography really. and yeah. uh, King of Queens, tons of episodes. Well, that's- uh, you know, it's thanks to Dad. I mean, I mean, I, I'm talented too, but yeah. I mean, it doesn't hurt. Well, you, know? you hold your own for Thank sure. You. Absolutely. I mean, I think that Day Tripper's fantastic. Oh, thanks. Uh, great reality I mean, bites. I think I that mean, I was one of those people who absorbed everything around me mm-hmm. and was kind of freaked out for the first thirty years of my life. <laughs> Did I ever say that uh, publicly? <laughs> oh my god. Um but that's why I've written this show called Just Trust and it's Yes, yeah, so let's talk my, about that. Well my mom yeah. used to say that about acting, but in a way she meant it about life, so mm. it's sort of her message, but my journey. Right. And I did it about fifteen times last year, and was doing rewrites and tweaking. So I've been just workshopping it. So I'm still working on it. It was like an hour and twenty five minutes, but then I took out. I put all this stuff in about like the boyfriend, but then I took it out. Right. You know. It, you know. Sometimes you just have to overwrite something, and mm. then you're like, you know, I don't. Nah. I mean, it makes sense to, that you write. write. Your that mom anymore. was a great writer. Um, you're, obviously, the, your your dad as well, but the writing gene is in the family. Well, you know, I, I mean, took this class with a guy named Matt Hoverman hmm? and Christine Renee Miller, and he, he has a, a class called Go Solo, and it gave me a great um, structure hmm. for the show. And you know, I don't think you, I don't do it alone. I think th- there were like five people in the class, and right. then you get real supportive feedback every time, and it really helped. And by the and by the time I finished writing the show, my mom literally died. Right. And in a way, it gave me my ending. So huh? wow. it's very poignant, but it's funny. And in a way, it was my gift to her and her gift to me. But she kind of needed to pass for me to get the ending. So it, 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 has, an, it has a great mm. ending. That's a lot of, yeah. lot of gravity at the end. That's a, that's yeah, perfect. I mean, it... it well, it's sort of like the spotlight comes to me in an unexpected way, but it's not in this big, you know, Oscar Emmy way. So it's the—I mean, the show is really about identity and family. So it's universal and, and and all that stuff you're saying about like finding your own identity, and then this sort of fame craze, and then you know, finding out what you know what what that means. Right. And, and also, there's sort of a part of it where it's like I go to L.A. and then I come back. So it, so it kind of has a Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Oh, Oops, yeah. did I give it away? Anyway, <laughs> but you know, it kind of has that L.A. New York thing. Well, um, you must have. I'm thinking you must have a book in you for sure, right? I don't know. Huh? I don't know. I'd, I like performing right. more, but I like writing like semi autobiographical because my show is semi autobiographical. It's not right. really. Some of it is, and then this happened. Who are some of the like amazing people that has crossed paths just because of the. John Guare, who wrote House of Blue Leaves. Oh, right, sure. Yeah, he, he, he changed my mom's life, you know, right. really. 
Yeah, a fellow writer. She was Bunny Flingus, that character in House Blue Leaves. She originated that role. Nobody ever, in my opinion, compared to her. She was sort of, she was Bunny, you know. Yeah. Uh, so who the who the like other people that you've you've been around in company of that just uh, you know um, that have kind of blown you away? Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan. Wow. I remember running into Ed Sullivan's arms. Wow. And I remember the cameraman saying, "Get out of the way, so the kid can <laughs> see the show." You know, and wow. you're, you're there in the middle of at the Ed Sullivan yeah, Theater. Yeah, at the Ed Sullivan right. Theater. Wow. And uh, Paul Lind. Paul Lind. <laughs> <laughs> I love Paul Yeah, my Lynn. mom was little, Hollywood Squares Yeah, my mom did a, a Christmas special with him Where mm-hmm. she was Mrs. Claus And right. he was Santa Claus And they were in bed, you right. know And in between takes They're sitting you know, They're lying in bed Turning right. in for the night And he whispers to her The last time I was in bed with a woman It was my mother <laughs> That we believe. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. I know. That's right? pretty crazy, yeah. 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 Uh, and then my parents had these friends, Joni and Charlie. Charles Knox Robinson, if hmm. you Google him. He was in The Sand Pebbles. He was in Splendor in the Grass. And Joni Callistri, Joan Callistri, that was her maiden name. She was in a Twilight Zone with, uh, with Robert Duvall. Oh, and they love. were... You know, he was very dashing and good-looking, and she was sexy and blonde, and he was also a magician, and he would have do magic shows at the Magic Castle, and he spoke five languages, and he went to Princeton. And my parents would try their comedy act out on them, right. you know, all the time. And they were just, like, really supportive. And he was he did all these 70s TV shows, like the uh, some movie of the week, The Daring Dobermans, about Doberman pinchers. I remember that. They robbed a bank. Yes! Oh, no! Charlie's in that. <laughs> And me and Ben would be like, Uncle Charlie's on TV. Or he'd play Marilyn's boyfriend on the Munsters. Right. You know, and then they, they'd show him, you know, running out of the house. And me right. and Ben were like, they were like movie stars. Sure, us. yeah. And we have this photograph of me and Ben dressed up in, like, like I have like an evening gown with a blonde wig. And Ben is wearing a goatee, a fake goatee. He <laughs> couldn't be more than, than nine years old. And, you know, sunglasses holding a martini glass. Right. And, and we, <laughs> In their backyard. And then Mike Douglas. Were you on the Mike Douglas we show? We were. Nobody knows who Mike Douglas was. We, Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin were yeah. the people, talk show hosts, right? The thought, afternoon. People like, mixed them up, right? Right. But he, yeah, they, and they, they, it was in Philadelphia, and they drove us to Philadelphia, and me and Ben played our violins. Uh, we did a duet of Chopsticks. Did you Google that? Did you YouTube that? I, you know, I was trying to find that. I couldn't even I, find it. It's somewhere... Yeah. It, it was sort of humiliating because I was like 11, like that age where I'm just about to hit adolescence. And um, I think I had to sit on my mom's lap because there wasn't room and I was just mortified. Yeah, and I was just, just like, oh, God. I'm way too cool for this. Yeah, way too exactly. big for this. Yeah. So we played chopsticks on the violin. Right. And there, I literally, there was just all blue-haired ladies in the right. audience. Wow. Yeah. And they thought we were just really cute. Uh, the other thing I thought was absolutely hilar- hilarious was when you were handing out copies of The Artist Away. And oh, what were some my, of the things you saw? <laughs> I literally was. Yeah. yeah, I was like giving away The Artist's Way to everybody. Uh, I just thought I, it was like, you know, I'll help people. If I'm miserable in my life, I'll just help people. So you've done stand-up for a long time. Well, and you've I, done some, I'm, uh, I don't theater. think of myself as a stand-up. I, li- I dabble in it, but, but I do mostly funny. characters. Thank yeah. you. I mean, uh, like, I do sort of bits. You know, right. I love to do it. It's, it, it, 
it just invigorates me to take that risk. I think writing your own stuff is really, it just makes you feel so good and in control right. and like you're, you're expressing yourself and it's you have control over it and I, I went I did this stand-up set that I never taped but it was like brilliant at Akbar in LA many years ago like they're just moments I mean I think don't you think like happiness is moments it's not like this thing oh I totally uh, yes absolutely you know, it, and I was like and I was just free doing it and um I is piecing together those small great moments that that's really what it's about because life is hard. It's full of bullshit um, and nobody is high and happy all the time. I mean, I don't mean to sound corny, but it's about learning. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, it's, I think it's about, you know, you're in competition with yourself, not with someone else. You're, you're, where are you now as opposed to where you were a few years ago, but not, I mean, I'm talking about your inner progress, not some, some, some outer uh, measurement right no you, you have are. to push yourself to continue to grow that's why I do this now I was trying to open another door in my life like what do I do I've been in the wine business for so long uh, how do I meet like a thousand new people that I would never get to meet I'm sitting across the table from you and I think um, it's also like taking risks like yeah. what is a what it's a risk for one person is not a risk for another right. person and that's why like I'm working on my show because I kind of want to do something a little more risky in the beginning. And I, I also think, you know, in terms of writing something, you have to get it up on its feet. And right. it, it, it doesn't have to be perfect. And I think it's right. perfection that stops people. It certainly stops me eh, a lot. And um, to just, you know, like I had this opening of my show, and it was sort of like a placeholder. And I'm like, oh, I hate that. Oh, I look at the video. And I'm like, that's not me. But I, ha- you ha- I had to do that to get to the next right. thing. I um, so when I, I started doing a live show, the next one will be September 18th at the Sidewalk Cafe again, and I had a bunch of people cancel uh, because they would call me and say, "I can't stand on stage and tell like a 10 minute story." And I said, "But you signed up for this." And they're like, "I'm just scared shit." And I would tell them, um, "You yeah. know what? You can't." I said, "You cannot see the future from the middle. You have to right. see it from the edge." Doing a live show when you're not used to standing on stage is standing on the edge and you're looking out at the future. Well, That's where you need to be. When I think about it, I. I wrote this piece. I was roasted at a roast for my parents in Nantucket. Um, so I, <laughs> you were roasted. I was. I you, got roasted at a roast oh, for my parents. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. All right. I have. I, I actually wrote this story called "This Isn't My Roast." So why are you sucking on my bone? Um, <laughs> and actually, again, it's part of it is in my show. Right. Um, but I have a standalone piece. But I I wrote that because I took this woman Paula Killen's um, class. She has this class called deadline Hmm. and she i don't know if she does it anymore but it was in la where you come in on friday you don't know what you're gonna write and by monday night you do a piece and because there are no expectations and you have a deadline they tend to be brilliant everybody tends to be brilliant because they have to do it and there are no expectations and you invite friends you know and i that's how a lot of my show started like originally also uh, I think storytelling shows are successful because people know honesty and truth when they see it. And if it's something that's not, it, their bullshit meter goes on. And like, I'm not interested in this. Well, yeah, that's why right? it's like, I'm like, oh, I need something different in the beginning of my show because this doesn't have any juice for me. Mm. And I'm going, what has juice for me? And I'm like, oh, you know, if I do that, you know, like that's scary. And that's the, that's the sign of Sam now I'm burping from the natural sign of <laughs> cheers <laughs> my cholesterol that's it we're fighting Amy's <laughs> cholesterol I am too we're drinking the lo-fi gamay 
comedy, you know, it can be competitive, but it can also be, um, you know, motivating. Well, you know, well, like I, that, that 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 adrenaline. Yeah, you know. I, I I like it. It scares the fuck out of me. Um, my good friend Ross, the night before, uh, called me, and he's he's pretty accomplished actor but he hasn't acted in years and years called me and goes two months ago man I thought this was the most brilliant idea and I loved you the night before the show he's I'm calling you I fucking hate you I hate you you're making me do this because then you talk yourself out of it you have to be hip to how your mind bullshits you but we laughed so hard for like 10 minutes him and I were wheezing laughing because he was so afraid and I was feeling the same thing right I was feeling afraid but I was just like all right this but this is what makes it fun Right. Um, yeah. I, I tell you, I used to do stand up uh, years ago, and uh, comics are the most egocentric people I've ever and, met. And insecure and needy. Yeah. I mean, they don't laugh. You, you get off and you have a killer set, and, and rather than somebody say, hey, that was great, they'll go, hey, you know, I have a great joke about my grandfather dying in a car accident, too. When we were kids, we'd go to LA, and I remember being at the improv in LA right. back when Robin Williams was, you know, Mork from Ork. Sure. And. Right. You know, being a kid and being around all that it was so exciting. And then you, you kind of, you kind of taste this elixir, and it's hard to just focus in school the next day. Sure, absolutely. It's hard to That's... just sort of, you, you kind of have to be in show business when you grow up in it like that. Well, because it's just the, it's, it's fun. It's it's fun, and everyone it's alive. loves you. Well, and you're alive. You're, right. You're interacting. You're you don't have your nose in a book, and you're not right. You know, solitary and in your brain. I've never. That, that's why when I'm writing my show, I I, I usually sometimes I speak into a tape recorder, mm-hmm. you know, or I get ideas talking to people, and then I turn on the tape recorder because to just sit and type doesn't right. seem to work for me. Right. It's yeah, no, hard it's, for me to do that. It's like being an actor, and you only recite your lines in your head. You have to speak them. Everyone sounds brilliant in their mind, but the yeah. reality is, you know, speaking and then. You're yeah, it's more about the lines. It. It's it's more than the lines. Uh, it's the, um, you know, the life you bring to it. Right. Like I'm watching Maura Tierney on The Affair. Do you ever watch The Affair? Mm. She's so cool. Because yeah. it's like, she's like, she has a scene with a like an L.A. therapist. And if you looked at those lines in a script, you wouldn't see any of what she's bringing to it. And right. she's just bringing like, this whole life to right. it. It's like Christopher Walken, you know, it's been you know, notorious for he gets his script and then he takes out all of the punctuation. Oh, yeah. That's, Isn't that uh, the, uh, the the David Mamet thing? Oh, uh, maybe. I think they do, do, they used to go to Vermont, those people, and I forget what it, it was, it was some, some acting technique thing. Right. But anyway. Everyone loves Christopher Walken, right? Everybody, wa- you know, everybody like, see, the thing with acting is everybody wants an answer. And the thing is, it's not a mathematical thing. It's such a personal thing. It's, right. not, it's like what Christopher Walken was saying also about how, like, um, emotion is like a wild animal. And if you tame it, if you say, like, I want you to do this now, it doesn't do that. It's like you have to sort of trick it. You have to. Right. And, I mean, there's no, I don't think there's any, there, there are techniques to help you, but I think there's no. Rules or I find it to be a, a bit of a cop it. out too because I lived in LA for a while too and everybody's an actor and mm-hmm. uh, it's just so easy to do. It's just like I mean it's like saying you know you can't say you know oh I'm an astronaut but I don't do math. It goes yeah, by like, different rules right. and you know we grew up my brother and I with as a role model and my parents weren't lawyers and doctors. Right, that was normal for us. Right, so that's that's a great thing because I I know people like who 
you know, they don't, they don't have that support from their parents. They didn't have that. They didn't have that understanding. Like, you know, if I do this show, my parents and I, we'd go out afterwards and right. they would get it, you know? Right. And they'd Did see they ever write material doing. for you or suggest? <laughs> my dad's or, always yeah. <laughs> wanted to sort of rule my life. Right. But he tells everybody to write a book. They think yeah. they're special. And then they find out there's a hundred other people who he said, write a book. Right. Like to the janitor, write a book. <laughs> Someone waiting on him, write a book. And then they walk it's in like, and go, and oh my God, Stiller said I should write a book. I mean, like, he saw something brilliant in me. <laughs> but in a way, he's right. Right. Because I think everybody should. I'm, I'm, I don't want to write a book. I, I feel like I'm writing my show is my book. Right. That's what I just want to kind of get out of my head. So who were the people that you would come over your house that you're like... God, I just remember, I remember like me and my brother, when my father, when my father was in Hurley Burley, mm-hmm. we're like, dad's working with William Hurt. Holy yeah. shit. Right. And I, we were living, at, I think I left home like the year after, but we were at home and we we're like, he's here. <laughs> Dad brought William Hurt back to the house. And then me and Ben and my father, I don't know where my mother was. She was asleep. We right. sat around the kitchen table listening to him talk, drinking white wines at four till four in the morning, and of course I was in love with him. Right. And you know my father was like, <laughs> you know, enamored of him because he's doing the play with him, and Ben wanted to be him or whatever. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? Like, like That's... he's like this movie star, amazing actor. Right. And we just sat there, and I was like, oh my god. Right. You know, but we remember we were like, he's here, and like we turned off the TV, and we just. We acted really cool, but we were, um, but we, you know, my parents used to have these wild New Year's Eve parties. Now we're talking. And what happened was, it was like in the 1980s. They had one New Year's Eve party, right? And it was like everybody came. It was, I think, it was around Hurley Burley, and then they had it the next year. And this party started catching on. And then, like one year, Francis Ford Coppola showed up. And um, it, Kevin Spacey was there because he was understudying Hurley Burley and Francis oh. Fisher. He was going out with Francis Fisher at the okay, time, right. you know, who um, married um, Clint Eastwood. Oh, right. Eventually. Sure. She's an right. amazing actress. Right. And there were just all these people at the house. And this became almost like a Hollywood party. That's a pretty cool and thing. And it was kind of like for five years. And then, I don't know, then the parties ended. And then right. people thought they weren't invited. But it was just like, no, no, we just didn't have a party. And then Kevin Spacey, everybody should come to my house. And everyone's like, no, he's weird. <laughs> um, what's that guy going to do now? He is, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And my dad did this little known show, um, this movie that was on um, Channel 13. And it was with Robin Williams. And it was this um, Saul Bellow novel uh he he played this um character Potemkin who was like a um he was kind of like a con artist and, and I'm sure he loved working with Robin Williams I've met Robin a few he, times and he, he is, said, was the nicest gentleman he said Robin ever. Williams had no fear yeah and he he said that he helped my dad with his fear hmm. and he said like like he just said have no fear right like I remember because my dad was nervous or whatever, the way we get as actors. And sure. he said, you know, have no, no fear. Well, my wine is almost finished. Okay, so let me in. I'll pour you a little bit more. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> so one of your uh, dad's thing that just howls and will keep uh, everyone howling is the Festivus um, 
scene from Seinfeld right. of the the holidays. Yeah, uh, where you you air your grievances. Actually, you know what happened <laughs> recently? It was a few years ago. What was it? Three years ago, we were at Harvest on the Hudson, this restaurant in Hastings on Hudson, and the waiter said, "My my brother is like he does this." Festivus thing every year. <laughs> would would your father be willing to come up? So we got him up there, and they had the pole. You know, Wait, the, the, so your father actually went. Yeah, and the, the the local news crew covered him. Right, and he, you know, he's like a Festivus for the rest of us. You know, in my dad's old age now, I'm I'm kind of like his agent. I got him that gig, yeah. you know, <laughs> and got him some publicity. Right, your dad's still in New York. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're New Yorkers. Yeah. our whole family. Yeah enjoying it now this has been like therapy thank you for coming and and doing this i appreciate it um thanks for drinking the lo-fi gamay with me delicious and uh, what would you is this light is that yeah this is very light very kind of strawberry it's kind of like i for lack of a Mm. for for an analogy it's american beaujolais uh so it's it's fruity but it's kind of serious but it's a nice wine for summer Mm -hmm. um that i think everybody will enjoy and uh and please let's let's talk about your one woman show, and I would yeah. help you. Uh, uh, I'd love to tell everybody. It now. Okay, and I so. will tell everybody. I'll put it on my website when it gets up. About Great, the dates and everything, thank and uh, it's going to be you. absolutely hilarious. And I love your studio. I love oh, your thanks. life. This is a guy, people, <laughs> who's made a life for himself. He's a role model. He drinks wine. I see guitars here. He tells stories. He knows famous people, but he's not needing fame. And isn't that what it's all about? Uh, thank you. You're welcome. I couldn't think of a better way to end. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to check us out at drinkingonthejob.wine. Until then, I'll see you at the bar. <laughs>